You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I, uh, I appreciate you being here. And this is the second of five lessons on uh, Jesus' relationships encounters with various constituencies. And last time we looked at evil, and today we're going to look at the scribes and the Pharisees. And next week we're going to look at Jesus' relationship with women. And then after Easter, Jesus' encounter with the sick. And then the last one will be Jesus' encounter with death. But just a little review of what I did last time, and then I'll move into the scribes and the Pharisees. The, the emphasis of what I'm trying to do is to understand why Jesus acted the way he did, not necessarily those against whom he acted. Last time we talked about Christ tempting Jesus there in the wilderness and the Jesus' encounters with the demonic. What we saw in Jesus, at least what I tried to emphasize with Jesus, is that he opposed it completely because it was destructive and antithetical to the goodness of God's creation and God's will. He resisted the temptations of the serpent, which were very clever, very enticing. I mean, it wasn't like he was tempting Jesus into moral depravity or perversities. He was actually tempting Jesus to reject the Word of God, and that's what Jesus turned down. He was not going to do that at all costs. And the encounters with the demoniac, who were you know, convulsing and destroying people, hiding in temples and distorting the Word of God, Jesus absolutely resisted and opposed. And I think one of the most significant things in remembering Jesus' opposition to evil is recorded there, and actually in two places, in Mark chapter, I mean Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees come up to Jesus and says, well, you're doing all this by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. And Jesus says, no, I'm not, not at all. I'm opposing him. How can I be working with Beelzebub if I'm actually opposing Beelzebub? So Jesus always rejected evil. It has no place within God's kingdom. All right, now we're going to move into, I think, a very fascinating study in the life of Jesus and his encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees. A little history about both of these. Uh, the scribes, like what the word says, they were writers. That is, they wrote down the law. They wrote down the manuscripts. But they were also like what we would call lawyers. That is, they, they sorted it out. They put them in categories. They were interpreters of the, the writings themselves. And so they had kind of a professional status. The Pharisees were different than that. They were not necessarily professionals paid to do like what the scribes were paid to do, but they were a movement in Israel that was trying to reform it to be more faithful to the Torah and to the God of the covenant. They began probably 150, 160 years before the birth of Christ during a period called the Hasmonean period. The Hasmonean was a, 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 a Jewish family who became rulers over Israel uh, during the Hellenization of that period. Hellenization means the Greek influence. They had resisted, Bar, Simon and Bar Koshba had led this revolt against the Greek influence there in Jerusalem and it expelled the presence of the Greeks there and in their place the Hasmoneans came in. However though, they were sort of fascinated with the Hellenized culture. And so there was a reaction against the amalgamation, the joining of the Israelites, the covenant with Greek culture. 
Now, there was a party, you probably know about this, that was sympathetic to that, and they were called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were usually the upper crust of society, the landowners, the wealthy people. But there was a strong opposition to incorporating anything other than just the particular Jewish influence out of the law, and that was there with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were middle-class, lower-class people that wanted to be purists. They wanted to keep a, the culture just strictly defined by the, the, the Scriptures themselves. And so it was a reform movement wanting to keep purity within Israel. Now, as that sort of permeated through the time, uh, it formed in different camps. The two largest camps of Pharisees, and I think this is significant, it will help us understand why Jesus was so oppositional to the Pharisees, were associated with two very significant and dominant rabbis. One was called Shammai, S-H-A-M-M-A-I, and the other one was Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. You may know of the second one because that's the name associated with nearly every, well, not every, but most of Jewish youth groups. They're called Hillel. College groups are called Hillel, and they're named after that famous rabbi. Uh, he, I, he was born, uh, you know, I think 100 years before Christ. He lived a long time. Well, the difference between them uh, was quite significant. However, though, it wasn't over the emphasis and the importance on the Torah. They both were very, very committed to studying the Torah, applying the Torah. The Torah means the five books of Moses. Uh, being very assiduous in keeping faithfulness and loyalty to the Word of God. The difference, though, had to do basically with temperament. Shammai, who is often called the more conservative of the two, felt that by applying the Torah, Israel had to reject all other people, even the sinners themselves. If you were not a righteous follower of the Torah, you had to be rejected. Definitely, if you were a Greek or a Roman, you had to be rejected. That part of the Pharisees were incredibly reactive against the Roman influence, I mean the presence. And Shammai? Yeah, Shammai, that's right, Shammai's group. And they, result, they revolted against the uh, Roman presence, and oftentimes Roman retali Rome retaliated against them. You can read a lot about this in Josephus. Rome often would crucify hundreds of Pharisees at the same time at the same time. The whole roads would be lined with crosses, crucifying these Pharisees who were rebelling against them because these, that is the followers of Shammai called the Bet, B-E-I-T, like the house of Shammai, would uh, uh, t totally resisted any, any uh, association with people outside of those who were the pure righteous ones of Israel. Even sinners, and definitely uh, you know, people who were mixed in any way, and definitely outsiders. Now, Hillel, though, was just as studious, just as committed to the Torah. However, though, and not only in his teachings, but in his temperament, it was said, that he was more open to others as well. He felt like the Torah would be the redemption of all people, not just the excluding of these people, that's Shammai, but the inclusion of these people. Now, you, many of you, are, I, I know quite aware of, the, aware of this, that there were some Pharisees that were very sympathetic to Jesus, Nicodemus being one of them. It was said of Nicodemus that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which would, we could call like the Supreme Court of Israel. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his own tomb to Jesus' burial, was a Pharisee as well. 
It does not say this. This is a conjecture. I think it's a reasonable one, though, that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were of the house of Hillel, the interpretive school of Hillel. That is, they, they were just as faithful interpreting the scriptures as the other group, but they felt more open towards differences than others as well. All right, when Jesus comes into his ministry, one of the first things that we find in his own definition of who he is is a rejection of those Pharisees. Now, which Pharisee is he rejecting? This is where we have to be careful and interpret the Bible, I think, with some sort of caution. Is it all the Pharisees? I don't think it is. I think the opposition that Jesus had to the Pharisees was not against all of the Pharisees. And I'll try to explain a little bit more about that in a second. Because we already know that Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea were very sympathetic to what Jesus was doing. And he was welcoming of them, by the way. He never castigated them. But there was this other group that Jesus vehemently, you know, with, with bitterness rejected. Okay, what I want to concentrate on in our lesson today is why. Why was he so oppositional to this group? Now, there are many, many different references to the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm just going to pick a few here that I think illustrate the main theology or commitment or perspective of, of Jesus. What does this tell us about Jesus? Can we learn something significant about Jesus in understanding why he was so opposed to some of these Pharisees? Okay, my, my, my argument is going to be yes, we can. All right, I'm going to first of all look at Mark chapter 2, starting verse 13. Now, I brought, these, these things are really helpful if you can ever get one of these. They're easy to get. Parallels, it helps you to see all of it here in, in one column, what all the Gospels say about it. One of the unique ones about this is called the Gospel Parallels, edited by Green and Shin, called the Common English Bible. Uh, it includes the Gospel of John. A lot of the Gospel parallels do not include the Gospel of John because it chronologically and in some lessons are quite different than the other, other three Gospels. This one does, and that's why I include it. And I'm going to read something from the Gospel of John just in, in a minute here. But here's what he says. Jesus has just called Matthew or Levi, who was a tax collector. And tax collectors were condemned by the Bet Shammai, that is the Pharisees that were aligned with the Rabbi Shammai because they thought they were in conspiracy, in cahoots with the Romans. They were traitors. And so they have nothing to do with the righteousness of Israel. In fact, if anything, tax collectors are sinners, despised people. All right, Jesus calls Levi, who was a tax collector, and um, the Pharisees object to that. And they ask him, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? In fact, they eventually use that as a charge to killing. And here's what Jesus says. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. Now, you've got to get the irony in that statement. I, you know, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. So he's coming to sick people, all right? I didn't come to call the righteous. It seemed like he would be coming to call the righteous but he comes to call the sinners, the sick people. So who are the real sick people here? Remember, that branch of the Pharisees divided the world into the righteous and then the sinners, which included Rome, the, 
the Greeks, prostitutes, tax collectors, the weak, the disabled, all these people who could not be as pure as they were the outcast. Well, I think the irony that Jesus is showing here, showing here is that He has come to call the sinners, those people whom they had rejected, that is the Pharisees who thought were not worthy of being part of the covenant, were not worthy of being part of Israel, who are not worthy of being recipients of the hope of God, Jesus has come to bring them into that very covenant, to bring them into the kingdom of God. Christ was coming to going to give them health, and it's the health of God, the health of the Word of God, the restoration, the power, the transformation of God's presence is going to be given to those people whom those Pharisees had rejected altogether, saying they were unworthy of being in the kingdom of God. Immediately what we see here then in, in Jesus' encounter and confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees is that He has challenged them, this is my interpretation, on the scope of the kingdom of God. He is challenging them. This is very serious for Jesus because they had reduced the kingdom of God to themselves. All right. The next major sort of theological point, I think, that Jesus makes about the scribes and the Pharisees is found. Yes? Wouldn't you say, though, that Jesus is also ironically saying you're the one that's Oh, that's right. Yeah, he's turning on them. You, you're the people who need to get right with God. That's right. And, that, that, you know, that, that's the key point. For whom do we think the kingdom of God belongs? How great and expansive is the love of God? How how How... how how encompassing is the presence of God in the world? How is it? Well, these Pharisees had shrunk it very low, and Jesus knew it was for the world, and that's what he's fighting. All right, the next one is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. This is in Jesus' what we call the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Just a little backdrop to those. Those who are going to Israel will be right there at that very place. I think it's one of the most beautiful places in all of Israel where they think the Sermon on the Mount was. A wonderful little chapel there, green pastures, not much green in Israel, but up there around Galilee it is, looking right out on the Sea of Galilee. It's really a, a beautiful place. And Jesus is there. He has called His disciples and the crowd that had already gathered around Him because you know the chronology of Jesus. He had been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and performed all kinds of miracles, and a crowd began to follow him. He comes across the Sea of Galilee, and there he is. And uh, he, he gives this, this tremendous but incredibly provocative and challenging sermon. It starts off with the Beatitudes, Blessed are. Now, if you know much about the Beatitudes, there are nine of them. Uh, none of them, would, you would think, refer to the privileged the high and the mighty of society. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who mourn. These are the people who are weak, who are not powerful, who are in a sense on the fringe of society. These are the people that the Pharisees probably would condescend to. And Jesus says they are the blessed ones, that the kingdom of God touches them, and they are reformed by the presence of Christ. All right, in verse 20, he says this. Uh, he has just finished 
the Beatitudes, and he talks about being salt and being light. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we'll have to give it to those Pharisees. They were serious people. They were devoted, diligent people. I mean, hard work was not their problem. They, they were very, very devoted to what they were trying to do. But what is Jesus saying? That the righteousness that is required to be in the kingdom of God is not their righteousness. All that they thought was right and that they were so committed to was not what was needed for the true kingdom of God to come into the world. That the disciples of Christ had to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, now once again, they were really good at what they were doing. I mean, they were careful people. They, they, they had backup for everything they did. In fact, uh, Shammah and Hillel are both recorded in what's called the Mishnah, if you know much about the history of Jewish scriptures. Uh, it was a descendant of Hillel, by the way, called uh, Prince, I just lost his name, Judas, Jude, Jude, Judah the Prince, that's right, who finally wrote down what's called the Mishnah, and eventually it was collected together with some other writings, the Gomorrah and so on, that became the Jewish Talmud which is second to the Torah in Jewish scriptures. And Shammai and Hillel are quite prominent in the Talmud. And so they were very, very careful in backing up everything they do. That's part of the, the Jewish sort of legal reasoning. That is, you've got to have just multiple verses to back up everything that you do. Shammai and his Pharisees were, were justifiable people. I mean, they had good reasons for what they were doing. It's not that they were just sort of stumbling around. But Jesus said that's not enough. Why not? I mean, they could quote the Torah. They knew the stories. They were consistent. Why is it what they were doing was not enough? That the real disciples, the real members of the covenant, those who really understood the presence of God, would do something even more exceeding than that. So, just to sort of capture the sort of irony that Jesus has on it. I mean, if you're going to quote the commandment, you know, only have one God. How can you be more exceeding than that? I mean, what's, how can you be even greater than worshiping just one God? Or how can you be greater than honoring the Sabbath or honoring your parents or not committing it? What's greater than? Well, what Jesus does, and I think this is very subtle, and most of us, myself included, don't quite capture, I think, the, like I said, irony or word plays that Jesus is giving here in the Sermon on the Mount. I think he... Once again, this is a Sansom interpretation, which is worth about this, this coffee, which was free, by the way, so it's worth nothing. Um, uh, I think Jesus always had the Pharisees at the corner of his eye when he's talking about these things, even though they might not have been there at the turn of the mount. But I think he always had them in mind because he knew that they were going to resist everything that he was up to. And what he says then, if from this point on in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're familiar with it, he says, you have heard that it was said of old. And he'll quote some from the, from the Bible. And then he says, but now I say unto you. So Jesus is doing what we can call in academic circles hermeneutics, which is kind of the science of interpreting something. You have to learn the right way to interpret a certain kind of text. What Jesus is saying to his followers here, you have to not just quote the Bible, 
just stack up verses behind your opinion, but you have to rightly quote the Bible. You have to quote it consistent with the spirit of it. And in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is challenging not the authority of the Torah. He doesn't. In fact, he even says, I've come not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. We have to interpret the Bible in a way that fulfills its purpose, not just to quote it. And what the followers of Shammai, I think, were just doing was just quoting the Bible as authority for their kind of arrogance and discrimination and condemnation of people. This kind of separatist movement that they had was ostracizing and, and rejecting all these people that needed the redemption of God. They had scriptural support, but they didn't have the spirit of the Bible. You know, for instance, you know, Jesus says, you know, you have heard that it's said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's right out of the Torah, the book of Moses. That is the law. There's no dispute of that. We cannot take that away. But now I say unto you, what do you say? You've got to love your enemy. Now, wait a minute. That's not in the book. What is he doing? Is he denigrating the book? No, he said he's come to fulfill it. What, I, what Jesus' point is, the real point of that is not necessarily a sanctioning of vengeance. I think, and this is my interpretation again, the real point of an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth is to control the impulse to just be randomly violent and destructive towards other people because the real goal is to love these people. And the question why, why should we love our enemy? And this is where Jesus becomes the right way for us to interpret the Torah is because that's what God does. God loves God's enemies. And if we use the Bible in any way that entitles us to hate our enemy, we are misusing it. That's his point. And he does that with adultery, he does that with oaths, he does that with all kinds of things. And, you know, he said, you know, there's that wonderful text there where he says, you know, you, you've heard that it said you should um, love your neighbor as yourself, but now I say unto you, uh, no, I got that wrong. You, anyway, the conclusion was you, you cannot judge anybody. I forget the exact context. I take too long to find it. But you can't judge anybody. Now, that was a slap in the face to the Pharisees because their whole MO, their whole modus operandi, their whole agenda was based on their entitlement to judge people. And Jesus said, you can't judge anybody because the log in my eye is bigger than the speck in yours. What he's arguing is that is the spirit of the law, and they're missing it. And by missing it, they are assaulting the work of God. And that's why he is so vehemently opposed to them. All right, now I'm going to go into the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 8, the Pharisees come up to him and uh, they're challenging him. He said, they're saying, you know, we are the people of Abraham. We are the righteous ones. Not you and all your followers, all those sinners and tax collectors and trollops. Not all those people. They're not with God. We're with God. We are the descendants of Abraham. And then Jesus says this. Um, and Jesus replied, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. Here I am. I haven't come to my own. God sent me. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my words. Your father is the devil. 
you are his children and you want to do what your father wants. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has never stood for the truth because there is no truth in him. Where is that in John? John chapter 8, verse 44. You are the devil. And why? Why, is, why are they of the devil? That's my point. Why were these people of the devil? Because they were so restricting of God's work. Because they were opposing God's effort to redeem the world. They were in opposition to the true covenant of Abraham. That the true covenant of the Abraham, and this, uh, this is in the book itself, was to be a blessing to all people, not just themselves not just to the self-declared, pure, righteous people. This is what Jesus is fighting about. I mean, I mean, everybody's a mess. Christ knew that. Everybody is falling from you know, the glory of God. Christ knew that. But what we cannot do in light of all that is to anyway jeopardize the salvific work of God to redeem the world. And so Jesus came into the world to do that very thing. And these Pharisees were opposing him at that. All right, uh, I, uh, I quickly want to do this, even though I think it's, we could spend a whole lot of time with this. There are three different episodes in Jesus' encounters with the scribes and Pharisees dealing with a wrong use of Scripture in which they would use Scripture in one way and Jesus challenges their use of the Scripture. Uh, just quickly, in case you want to write all these down. The first one has to do with when Jesus picked wheat on the Sabbath. This is found in Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 23. The second one has to do with what contaminates a life. You know, why aren't you washing your hands and all this sort of stuff? That's found in Mark chapter 7, starting with verse 1. And then the third one has to do with teachings about divorce. And that's found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. All right. Uh, I don't have enough time to go into detail on each one of those. I'm going to look at the third one here in some, some detail. But those are illustrations where the confrontation between Christ and, and the Pharisees has to do with the right use of Scripture. They were wrongly using it. I mean, you can use the Bible and use it incorrectly. In fact, you can use it in some ways that is devilish, as Jesus would say. You're the devil, and you're using the Bible to support this place? You got to use, we have to be able to use the Bible correctly. All right, I want to look at this one on divorce. <clears throat> All right, uh, some Pharisees came to him in order to test him. They said, does the law allow a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And in the Markian parallel, there's a little bit added there that I want to bring in to this description. Jesus answered, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a divorce certificate and to divorce his wife. And in fact, that is in the case. That is the case in Deuteronomy 24. So Moses allowed divorce. That is, all that a man had to do was to make it legal. Had to write a writ of divorce and take it to the gate, which was a symbol of kind of like a public hearing, and if it was accepted, he could divorce his wife. So it's in the book. 
It's Deuteronomy chapter 24. They, they, they were not wrong to quote that because it's there. They were all well aware of it. They felt like they had the authority of Moses. And then they had this rather permissive view of divorce from the man to the woman, not the other way around, though. So the Pharisees here, though they were rigorous and literalist, nonetheless had a very permissive idea of divorce because they had found a text in there that justifies it. All right. Then Jesus says this, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And God said, Because of this a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife, and the two become one flesh. And that's in the creation account. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. Or the old King James says, no one can put asunder what God has brought together. That is, God brought the marriage together, and it cannot be put asunder. So you have two passages here played off on one another. There's Moses' rule that's found in Deuteronomy 24, and then this teaching here found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Jesus says, well, I'll go ahead and follow this. Jesus replied, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because your hearts are unyielding, because it wasn't that way from the beginning. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So their practice of divorce, though it had <clears throat> scriptural backing, was a misunderstanding of what marriage was. They had scripture, but they misunderstood what marriage was all about. They needed to go back to the purpose of marriage, not just to Moses' teaching. And as Jesus said, to use the King James Version, it was because the hardness of their hearts that Moses allowed, because they were sinners, because they were too weak to live up to the purpose of marriage, because in their own minds or hearts or whatever, they decided they didn't want or couldn't be absolutely faithful to their wife anymore. And so Moses said, all right, I'll give you this way out. They should have recognized that. That's, I think that's the irony of Jesus' point. Quoting the Bible is not enough. You've got to recognize how to rightly interpret it. And how do you rightly interpret it? Every passage about Scripture, I mean, excuse me, every passage about marriage in Scripture has to be interpreted in light of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. What God has brought together, no one can put asunder. That's the purpose of it. I'll just say parenthetically here, um, Jesus has the strictest teaching on marriage and divorce of anyone in Scripture. Uh, you know, a lot of us in sort of modern society want Jesus to be very, you know, open and permissive and tolerant and, you know, pretty excusing to all kinds of things, and He is definitely. I mean, look how, how forgiving and open He was to sinners. I mean, he could mingle with all kinds of people and not be intimidated, not, not feel that it was antithetical to his mission. It was amazing how, how Jesus, well, he was the kingdom of God. He was the presence of God in places where people thought no way God could be there. However, though, when it came to this, though, he has the strictest teaching of anyone in Scripture. And I think, as he says here, this is why marriage was set for that reason. What God brought together, not the two people. The two people did not bring the marriage together. God brought it together. 
And that was the purpose of it. And here the Pharisees, because they were looking to ways, I don't know exactly. I, I, you know, I guess this is one of those questions when we're all sort of called up yonder. Um, we can ask Moses, hey, Moses, we're with you. You're great. I, I wish I could have been there and all that. But why did you say this? What, what was going on? This was written down. And it, once again, it's in the scriptures. We've got to take it seriously. But we always have to balance out the letter with the spirit. We always have to balance out the way we use scripture. Do we? And here, here's the hermeneutical principle. And uh, you know, I, I would, I would base all that I know about anything on the truth of this. That is, we have to know the difference between using the Bible as just a rule to follow, versus using a bi- the Bible to help us to love God with all our hearts, minds, and soul, and our neighbor as ourselves. Because even Jesus says that's the sum of the law and the prophets. And if we use the Bible in any other way than to love God with all of our life and to love our neighbor itself, we're misusing the Bible. And that's exactly what they were doing. Yes, Elvis. I was just going to say, I wonder if the Deuteronomy is anybody else, at least vis-a-vis God. And we have to love them as ourselves. To be truthfully honest, and all of us have to accept that we're frail creatures of dust. I mean, I, I'm 70 years old and I'm still trying to make peace with the fact that I'm a mess. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I was hoping around 40 I would have finally found it. But, um, be that as it may, people never really grow in any kind of psychological health but fi- finally accepting the fact that we make mistakes, we're frail, we will continue to make mistakes. We're unbelievably needy people with profound conflicts in us. Okay, if I'm to love that about me, I've got to love that about you too. That's what the Pharisees were not wanting to do. They were not wanting to accept that they were unrighteous. Therefore, they were not willing to accept those who clearly seem to be unrighteous as righteous as well. That's, that's the issue. Can we love people strongly enough, sincerely enough, faithfully enough, to allow the kingdom of God to work through us to bring healing and salvation to the world. Can we do that? Yes. It's the same as uh, we talk about the spirit of the law versus uh, the uh, letter. letter of the law. Uh-huh. Uh, when you're talking about taking scripture literally. Yeah. You know, I, I think you've explained to me now why I heard a professor say he called them fun damn mentalists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, because they took everything so literally. Well, you know that's said tongue in cheek, but now think about it. Fun, damn. I mean, Jesus says they're of the devil. Why is that? Because they're working against God. Now I know some fundamentalists who are great people who call themselves fundamentalists, so I'm a little careful of doing that. However, that attitude, though, once again, if I use Scripture to damn people, I'm misusing Scripture. Okay, there's this wonderful parable, and it is a vignette, uh, vignette, not a vignette, that's, I don't know what a vignette is, but a vignette of, of the gospel itself. And that's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me find it. Here it is. It's short. This is great. This is one of the best ones, I think. Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous tongue-in-cheek, he's looking out over here, this is you people over here, and who looked on everyone else with disgust. This is a class, this is a a, a very clear description of those Pharisees. 
two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself with these words, God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else, crooks, evildoers, evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I receive. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even lift his eyes to look towards heaven. Rather, he struck, or struck his breast, or the King James says, smote, I don't like that, smote his breast and said, God, show mercy to me, a sinner. I tell you, this person went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and all those who make themselves low will be lifted up. This is the essence of the gospel right here. And it's in that contrast between the tax collector, the sinner, the rejected one. And they were. They were in cahoots with the Romans. I mean, they, they were despicable people. And Jesus called one of them and changed his life. That's it. Jesus changed Levi's life into Matthew, a disciple. And we read a book with his name on it. And Jesus can change anyone's life, no matter how depraved or how far out in the far country they are. But that Pharisee said, no, no, they don't belong. I'm the one who belongs. And so Jesus is rejecting that. Now, I've just got a minute or two before I have to go. Um, the last big discussion that Jesus has about the Pharisees is found in Matthew chapter 23. This is molten lava, by the way. Jesus has decided not to mince any words, not to be ironical, uh, but to be crystal clear in his denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. This starts in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, all the way through verse 36. It has some brief parallels in Mark and Luke, but the Matthewan version is the long version, and they are what's called the seven deadly woes. Okay, he's, he's close to being tried and crucified. From the very beginning of his ministry, he has encountered the evil one, the tempter, the demoniacs, and the scribes and the Pharisees. His effort to bring peace to the world, and if you, if you remember this, I think I talked about it last time, his first sermon recorded in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4 is at Nazareth. He had already been preaching around Galilee, and then he goes over to Nazareth and he preaches, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 58 and chapter 61, two verses there. He, he goes right to the scroll and finds this, and it says, this is the acceptable year of the Lord. And in that, the oppressed will be freed, the, uh, the, the blind will see, get their sight, the poor will be fed. Jesus says, this is the acceptable year of the Lord. And he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus has come into the world to bring this great liberation, this great freedom, this great salvation to all people. He's come into the world. And from the very get-go, here was this group of people out of their arrogance and supercilious ways opposing him rejecting everything he's talking about. And Jesus, being the Son of God, knew that God's work was at stake in this. And so it has just been coming and coming and boiling over and boiling over. And then just days before he, he's crucified, he issues these seven deadly woes. I'm going, I don't have enough time. I've got just one minute. I'm going to spot read one of these. Um, verse 13. How terrible it will be, and the King James, once again, is woes, 
how woe you scribes and Pharisees, how terrible it would be for you legal experts and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut people out of the kingdom of heaven. You don't enter yourselves and you won't allow those who want to enter to do it. So that is the coup de grace. That is the, I'm, I'm looking for some analogies here to make this Jesus's final condemnation of who they are. That's why they're wrong. That's why Jesus opposes them so vehemently because they keep people out of the kingdom that God wants to bring in. Isaiah's vision was that Israel would become a light to the nations. A light. That from them, people would see the love of God and be renewed by the presence of the kingdom. That's what Isaiah saw. And Jesus said, I've, I've come to do this. This is what's happening right now. And here are these forces of darkness, and here are these Pharisees saying, nope, 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 nope we don't want that. And so Jesus finally says, you're, you're damned for what you're doing here. Woe to you. All right, in conclusion, let me add this. You know, of course, there have always been Pharisees around. There are a dime a dozen, aren't they? <laughs> I hope I'm not one. Uh, I, I, maybe someday I, I'll, I'll learn maybe I have, and I should repent in dust and ashes if I've ever been Pharisaic about the gospel uh, towards other people. They're always around. And we, who really want to take the message of Jesus seriously, who really want to not only us be transformed by the power of Christ's presence in life, but to be ambassadors for reconciliation, which is what the Apostle Paul commands us to do, be ambassadors of reconciliation, we too must be able uh, to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then we will know the power of the kingdom of God throughout the world. Yes. Well, you know, he... he I thought that guy was going to get up and hit him. Well, he was quoting Luther. He was quoting, he was quoting Luther at the, at the Diet of Worms when all these people said, who are you to challenge us? And Luther said, you know, the whores in the street are more righteous than you are. At least they know they're whores. <laughs> so let us all know that we're all whores, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Because then we'll experience the power of the transformation of the gospel in our lives and we become ambassadors of Christ. All right, I'll conclude this with a prayer. Father in heaven, whose mercies are unbounded, we are so grateful for Christ coming in, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, that has brought us light into our darkness. Help us, O Lord, to resist the temptations of being Pharisaic and to be instruments of thy peace. This I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.